The Athletic. I'm Michelle Owen and this is the Athletic Women's Football Podcast World Cup Edition. The final has been played and Spain are world champions. Their 1-0 victory over the Lionesses sees the Roja go from entering the tournament with internal strife and acrimony, being humiliated 4-0 by Japan in the group stages to winning the whole thing. As for England, they fell at the final hurdle. With me today are the Athletic Charlotte Harper and Mark Kerry. Hey guys. Hello. Hi Michelle. And joining us from Stadium Australia in Sydney, where the final has just finished, it's Michael Cox. Hey, Michael. Hi, Michelle. We'll also be hearing from Laia Cebeo Herrero later in the episode. Let's get to it. So Spain have won the World Cup and we have a new name on the Winter World Cup trophy. The Athletics' Laia Cebeo Herrero has followed Spain all the way through the tournament and she caught up with producer Abby after the game. Well, I'm here in the press zone with Laia. And Laia, you've been in the press zone. You've had a bit of time then to think about what this means. Just the phrase Spain are World Cup champions. What on earth does that mean to the country? Uh, a lot. Uh, I think it's something massive for for the country. Uh, especially if you take a look on the clubs and the institutions that are taking care of uh, women's football over there. This is like the... The proof that if you believe in one project, if, if you support one project, that will bring you results. And it's what ha- it's happening uh, to FC Barcelona and it's what happened to, to Spain. I think it's a country that lots of times they have an inferiority complex. And probably it's because like the evolution of uh, the women's football has been so slow during the, all the years. And they keep feeling uh, as, as themselves as... Uh, the team that never goes through the round of 16. So probably just believing in, their, in themselves and uh, just going through that stage where they are, where just they seem uh, just I don't know how to say it, but they seem destined just to be always a team of uh, the round of uh, of 16. Just be a world champion is so big for them I think and it would be it would mean a lot for for the country and I I, I hope that this is like a key point for, for the evolution of the women's team. Let's talk about the game itself. Um, Spain, clearly the better team on the pitch. Where, in your opinion, were they able to dominate England? I would say probably they had they have learned to be resilient. And this is something that could seem silly, but I think for Spain it's big because it's what was missing in the team. Like, for example, in the Euros last year against England, they were, I think... I would say they did a great 90 minutes game and then they just fall down in the extra time. Probably I would say resilience and also knowing that they have to make efforts in defence, all of the the players, not only the the defensive ones, and also to be more vertical because sometimes they abuse of passing and they abuse of having the ball and not knowing what to do with 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 it and today I think they were just more, more efficient probably it's not the best game for Spain I prefer the one against Switzerland or against the Netherlands but I would say they are just reinforced after after that final We've seen now, um, following the result, that the Spanish FA have tweeted a picture of him kissing the trophy and the phrase Vilda in 
obviously that's hugely uncomfortable and it just baffles a little bit. Does that mean that we haven't seen the last of him as Spanish head coach? I'm afraid that it might be the the answer, yeah. I mean, I don't know if the players will be happy enough. Surely, uh, Mapi Leon, Patrijarro, Claudia Pina, Sandra Paños will be not happy. Yeah, there was, like, between the journalists, we had the feeling that maybe he would quit after winning the World Cup because he was, like, just uh, finishing his era there on the top. Yeah, it, it seems that he will just continue being the coach, maybe because he wants to be there for the Olympic Games. I don't know. It's quite hard just to tell what he's going to do because he's not keen to talk to the press. Uh, he's very hermetic. So, yeah, this might be the, the question. So I have the answer. So he might be the coach next year. Crazy. Let's have a sp- more positive thing, though. Let's go back to the players because it was them who did it on the pitch. You've been in the mix zone. What has been the overriding emotion from the players that came through? They were super emotional. Uh, some of them has been just fighting for, for a day like this all his life. We are talking about Jennifer Hermoso, Alexia Putellas, Irene Paredes. They are like senior players that have been there all, all their life and this is quite new for, for them. Even if in Barcelona they have won the Champions League and all, all other big titles. But yeah, I think they were just super emotional. Even Aitana Bormati, who is a player that she doesn't like to show up like the, her feelings, we saw her just being emotional. I think it has been a tough year for all of them and they deserved it. And they were like just getting all the emotions that they have inside, all the critics that they have received, uh, just letting it flow and it was, it was nice. One thing on Aitana Bonmati, I've been speaking with our photographer, Georgia, and uh, some people in the stands wanted her socks. So she was on the side of the pitch taking off her socks to give to the supporters, which is one of the weirder things I've ever seen uh, or heard about at a football match. Laia, you have been phenomenal this tournament. Um, Congratulations for Spain winning. Thank you for all the things and uh, brilliant pieces you've written. You have absolutely worked your socks off as well. But thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. So let's unpick it then, Michael. Uh, interesting choice for Spain to start, Parallelo. I mean, you could argue she'd done more than enough to start. It proved to be a good call though, didn't it? She was good. I mean, she just offers that sheer pace through the middle. I think at times she doesn't quite have the decision-making. Maybe her first touch isn't good, but she really frightened England. And uh, yeah, I think that was one of a few things that put Spain on the front foot. And even though it came down to one moment, I do think overall Spain were the better side. I think they moved the ball very well. They worked it in wide areas. Maybe didn't always get their crossing right. But uh, yeah, I think on the balance of play, you have to say that Spain were the better side tonight. Yeah, and in the early stages, England, their defensive shape looked generally pretty solid. There was not much attacking opportunity for England in the first 10 minutes, but then on 15 minutes, Hemp hits the bar mark. She couldn't have done much more with that chance, could she? No, no, I think it was a it was a good effort. I think in general there were times when England had to go a little bit longer, a little bit more direct, especially in the first half. They sort of showed that and I actually looked into the numbers on it and they their share of long balls, it was sixteen percent of their total passes were long passes. And sometimes that was because of counterattacking play to to get hemp and, and Russo sort of in behind. Um sometimes it was probably to bypass Spain's midfield because we know how strong their midfield is, and I'm sure we'll come on to that. But at times, I think the the pairing of Russo and Hemp, especially in the first half, we know there was a change made, was a little bit isolated and they sort of had to make the most of those chances. And that Hemp chance you referred to was 
one where they actually did get into a lucrative area and had bodies around them as well. But there were just times when they just felt they're just a little bit isolated and they couldn't quite connect the, the midfield and the attack England. And as I say, we know how strong Spain were in, in sort of controlling that midfield. Yeah, Spain had a big chance then, a huge save from Mary Epps, but Rodondo maybe could have done better. Um, the game calmed down a bit after that until, well, it proved to be the match-winning moment, Charlotte. Olga Carmona scored in the 28th minute. It, it feels harsh to criticise Lucy Bronze, you know, one of the best players in the world, but it was her that had broke forward. She chose to come inside. She lost the ball in midfield. But Spain were clinical in how they capitalised on that space left behind down that side. Yeah, and we knew that before the game. Lucy Bronze cannot afford to let Caldente and that uh, huge gap in, in that left forward position and in England's right back. And she was going on her marauding runs. It was you know, similar to the Champions League final, Wolfsburg-Barcelona, where she was caught there and just overran it, lost possession. But Spain did so well to get that diagonal ball from Batier into that clinical and a brilliant finish. And what England needed throughout this game was discipline. And we knew that they needed grafters in midfield. And that's where the goal came from, losing that ball in midfield and brilliant finish. I think Bronze's run did feel quite kind of ad hoc. It didn't feel like she kind of knew which direction she was going in, which obviously fed into it. I... I do think as well, I don't know how many people have spoken about this, but I thought Ella Toon could and should have made more of an angle for, for Bronze in, in the past. I think Bronze even put her arm out to say, like, give me give me an angle because you could sort of see she was going down a blind alley and Toon was just not getting out of the way to to create any sort of angle and then obviously the, the attack broke down. So it was frustrating to watch. I'm going to try and give Bronze a bit of the benefit of the doubt there. But um, in general, again, I looked at the numbers of Spain's attack and 45% of Spain's attack came down their, their left channel when thinking about their attacking uh, touches in the in the opposition half. And that was comfortably the highest of the, of the tournament. And Olga Carmona actually had 102 touches from left back and she was the only player who had 100 or more touches within the game. So it was quite clear that, that England were trying to sort of overload that, that left-hand side and you know, the midfield drifting over onto the left-hand side and having such nice, neat interchange, knowing that Bronze was going to attack, whether it was off-ball runs or with the ball, to try and then expose that space. So it was sort of a, a tactic throughout. It wasn't just a, a one-off moment that obviously led to the goal. And this shouldn't have come as a massive surprise because anyone who watched the semi-final between Spain and Sweden would have seen Carmona have two efforts in the first half that were pretty similar to that one. And then, of course, scored the winner quite near the end. And it is a bit of a feature of Spain that whenever their fullbacks get space ahead of them, and they're always going to get space here against an England side that didn't have natural wingers, those players just really dribble forward directly. They really bomb towards goal. And Carmona, who, you know, is a bit, I know she's the captain, but she's a bit of an unheralded left back, has scored the winner in the semi final and the winner in the final. And I think in a tournament without real individual stars, you almost have to say she's been the, the player of the tournament because she's had two massive decisive moments in the two biggest games. Well, big changes at halftime then for England. Serena Vigman decided to bring Lauren James and Chloe Kelly on for Alicia Russo and Rachel Daly. Did wonder if they'd change shape, Michael. They did go to a back four. Didn't really have the desired effect though, did it? Why was that? It was a funny one. I, I, I did think it was the right decision to move to back four. I must say, I was really surprised she took off both Daly and, and Russo 
who were the two, I know Daly was starting as a wing back, but they're the two players who can provide a penalty box throughout. And it, it looked to me like England were just real, really trying to load up on pace with Kelly and Hemp and James, which is a pretty terrifying front three. But there were just moments, I mean, there was one bit where there was a ball out to bronze and she side-fitted across into the box. There was just no one making a run there. And There's no focal point, was there? There's no focal no, point to the attack, I, really. I know that Wiegmann always has a plan. I very rarely think she gets things wrong tactically, but I, I couldn't see the point of just completely discarding Russo and, and Daly because, you know, I mean, we know that England can come on. We know Bright can come up front, but England did play the second half really without a proper number nine. And I, I just can't really see the, the logic for that. I don't know what Charlotte and, and Mark think on that. I think if, if goals are going to come, Russo and Daly would be high up on your list. And of course, you know, James can provide that moment of magic or Kelly, but especially Daly at the back post, she was always threatening, as was Lucy Bronze. So yeah, it it was confusing that England did not have somebody in the box that really threatened that Spanish back line. And, and just to jump in and, and build on what you said, Charlotte, I think one of the clearest chances England had was when there was that big switch to Jess Carter at the far post. And with all due respect to Jess Carter, probably the last player in the England side you'd want that chance falling to. If that's Rachel Daly, OK, maybe Daly would be marked better. Who knows? But, yeah, might have been a different outcome if it had been the WSL do- uh, top goal scorer and, rather than a player who I, I can't ever remember her scoring, to be honest. And, and the composure from Daly to lay it down to Hemp for the chance on the bar. Like she, she, she has that nous in the box. I mean, as well, speaking about composure, I think this sort of, I mean, England had to try and get back into a World Cup final. So I know that there's going to be kind of a bit of a frenetic end to the game, but it didn't feel like there was all too much composure in the final. I mean, there was 30 minutes added on, but even before the, the 90th minute in the kind of last 15, 20 minutes, it did seem just fast track it into, obviously England came on and Bright had to go up top and even kind of working it up towards them. It just felt it was long balls. It was fouls which Spain were very good tactically at kind of drawing but it, it didn't seem like the the focal point and the, the way to reach the attack actually had any control in it which is in such contrast to the fact that England controlled the final few minutes of the the Euros final as well it just felt like they kind of got played a little bit at, you know a bit of taste of their own medicine. And that as well felt a bit strange to me again I'd be interested to hear your your guys thoughts but it felt like England went from not playing any focal point up mm. front to them playing two then because Bright went up front at the same time as England came on it felt like okay maybe that was the plan maybe it was look we've got plan A plan B plan C and they're completely different but it felt like just such a massive shift from playing that way to playing that way and of course when you ended up with two you know let's call Millie Bright a proper striker for these purposes then England lost the felt to me like lost the battle in midfield and just weren't able to get the ball forward quickly enough so I, I yeah I, I just felt to me like they really chopped and changed between two completely different approaches in the in the second half and yeah I found that slightly confused and I, I don't think it's often you would say that about England under V. Can you ask can you ask Serena yeah. that in the press conference please Michael? I will as long as you let me go in time. <laughs> <laughs> the penalty on 64 minutes oh we love talking about handballs and penalties don't we it took so long to make this decision uh, Michael how did it play out in the stadium because obviously we saw a million replays look by the letter of the law if the ball touches your hand in the penalty area, it's a handball. I mean, there's been much debate online about it, but how did it unfold in the stadium? And what did you think about the decision? 
Yeah, I mean, as always in, in the stadiums, obviously the, the fans aren't seeing the replay and, and we in the press box are. And I think that, that makes VAR look even worse when you just have fans waiting around for three minutes or whatever it was, probably longer without a decision. I mean, it was one of those where, you know, the, the bit of a cliche, but I think it's true is that if the referee needs to look at it 30 times, it's probably not clear and obvious. That said, I don't really know why she did need to look at it 30 times because sadly for Kira Walsh, she does make a movement with her arm towards the ball and it hits her hand and it stops the ball falling to a, a Spain player. So I think it was a, I think it was a penalty, personally. What did you make of, should we call it gamesmanship, Charlotte by Lucy Bronze floating around the penalty area? I mean, there's a thing quite often we see when the penalty taker taking the penalty doesn't actually have the ball. Someone else takes it, so they take all the, uh, what shall I call it, the mind games before they take the spot kick. Um, but what was Lucy Bronze trying to do there? And why, why do you think it was? It's classic Lucy Bronze. You know, she's giving her goalkeeper, Mary Ertz, the best possible chance. So anything to put Jenny Hedmoso off, that's part of Lucy Bronze's character. And, and that's um, England needs someone like that. But then Aitana Bonmati responded quite quickly and you saw that mirror for Spain as well of protecting her own player, Jenny Hermoso. The ball was clearly like not on the penalty spot and it was adjusted and anything to disrupt the rhythm of the striker, their process, anything like that, just to distract the attention away. But in the end, that wasn't needed because Mary Epps uh, came to the forum. Uh, I questioned whether she came off her line too early, but we've looked at that back and it seemed as though her heel of her right boot was on the line. And what a save. What a save from Mary Earps. And that kept England in the game. Big personality. You know, we saw that save from Redondo early on and the momentum shifted from then on. I don't think it's safe to say what Mary Earps shouted after she did save the penalty, but I think a lot of people will. What do you think she shouted, Mark? I can't possibly I, I am not at liberty to say, I don't think. But going back... You're not good at lip reading, then. No. Um, <laughs> going back to the, the bronze uh, gamesmanship, as, as we'll call it as well, I just think that was absolutely essential to it. And I find these sorts of things really interesting. I think that there is research to show that there's a essentially a temporal link between a penalty being awarded and it being subsequently taken. So essentially the longer duration between the two means that the, the penalty taker is actually less likely to score. So I'm not suggesting that Lucy Bronze has gone into the, the back catalogue of research on penalties, but it does just show that anything to, to disrupt the rhythm um, really does affect the, the penalty taker. And yes, it was a great save, um, but I think Bronze had such a key part to play in it. So if you can do anything to disrupt the flow, then do it. And, and she absolutely did. Charlotte, you mentioned the momentum shifting there. Um, Lauren James was on in the second half too. Just the struggle really, didn't she, Michael, to, to make the mark that England fans would have hoped that she was going to make? Was that system issues? Was it Spain just being on it and being on her? What was it? Yeah, I think you're right with the end bit there. I must say, despite the fact she wasn't great individually, I did think the fact that she just attracted so many Spain defenders because they looked really terrified of her. I think in a way she probably was quite a positive introduction because I think it afforded others a bit more space but yeah in the end maybe not quite enough just to carve out chances and again to go back to what we're saying there wasn't really much of a penalty box threat when England were getting the ball into the final third you think maybe with Hemp and Kelly and James on the break it's okay but once you do get a bit of pressure you do get you know Spain kind of backing off 
not quite sure what the best approach was there. And I thought quite a few times where it looked like England had created a good chance, actually they'd been, or they would have been flagged offside. I think that was what Spain did quite well. They held their defensive line and England obviously trying to go in behind, but they weren't timing the runs very well. So yeah, there wasn't that much, wasn't that much goal-scoring threat from England in the second half, to be honest. Uh, Alex Greenwood got a oh, big knock to the head, didn't she? That contributed to those 30 minutes of extra time, but... I don't know, Mark. Did it ever really feel that England were going to get level in this one? No, it was as I say because it was so frantic um, towards the end. It just felt like it was it was just that little bit too too rushed. And to Michael's point before, I thought it was an interesting point where they were kind of going direct, sort of vertically. And if you're going to play two players who are so strong aerially, you think if you can get it into wide areas, even if it is from deep wide areas, and then cross the ball and maybe hope for a knockdown. But if you're playing it from the back vertically up to those players and they maybe do flick it on, the flick on is then also going to be vertical. It's either going to go towards the central defenders or towards the goalkeeper. But if you get a bit of an angle on it, then you can either get it a bit of a knockdown. There might be a bit of a scramble and you kind of build from there, so to speak. So it was quite frustrating to watch because it was just so stop-start. There was no real threat or danger. There was the maybe the opportunity of that corner right at the very end where obviously Mary Epps went up for it. But... Michael, I think you you did a tweet, didn't you? Kata Cole was considering she's sort of late addition to the the Spain squad. Her um, you know collection of crosses was incredible, and that under the pressure of that, the final corner of the game to claim it so comprehensively with bodies around her, like only credit to to the Spanish goalkeeper there. Yeah, she was great. I mean, I think Laya said on this podcast. Uh, yesterday or maybe before that she didn't really know she was going to come into the side until two hours before that first knockout game she's a backup for Barcelona she was the backup for Spain she's got no real experience at this level she's so cool with the ball at her feet she can do kind of Cruyff turns inside her own box I thought her distribution was good she's very very um, good at sweeping keeps a really like high starting position and she's not the tallest I mean she really just I don't know whether she more doesn't look like a goalkeeper or doesn't look like a footballer, but a combination between the two. But every time a cross comes in, she's so, I mean, so calm in in dealing with it. And I thought it was quite fitting in the end that that was how the game finished because, yeah, a player... I mean, I must be honest, I I really wasn't aware of her before this tournament, but she's been one of the best players in the competition. Mm. And she's 22. Jorge Vilda said it was a tactical decision not to take Sandra Panas. (laughs) I didn't know that. (laughs) <laughs> Hats off to, to Catacol, but you know, Mary Epps gets the golden glove. Um, so Parallelo won the Under-20 World Cup with Spain last year, the Under-17 World Cup with Spain in 2018 as well. Look, she's a great example of some of this Spanish talent coming through, isn't she, Michael? If Jorge Vilda leaves after this tournament, and some of those currently not in the squad, you know, we, we have to talk about this, the fact that there are players that refuse to go to this World Cup because of everything that's happened behind seven, the scenes. Seven players refuse to play under Jorge Vilda. Right, so we're expecting Jorge Vilda to go, aren't we? Even though they've won the World Cup, Charlotte. And will these players come back? I mean, it's actually frightening when you when you think about it, that they're missing potentially seven of their best players. Not necessarily. I know the, the Federation has stood by Jorge Vilda, even though uh, Barcelona players asked him to resign after the Euros. And if you haven't been following uh, Laia Cervello, uh, the athletic Spanish journalist, then check out her articles detailing Spain's run to this World Cup. Um, But it's really conflicting because you have a manager who is disliked by the players winning a World Cup. 
So A, that shows the levels that these players have reached given the um, unharmonious relationship in the camp. And that was really illustrated by the coaching staff celebrating as a unit and the players separated and celebrating. You know, against the Netherlands, the Spain players were ignoring their coach in the celebrations as well. So very conflicting that this manager who has a controlling personality and that has been widely reported and that the Spanish players were not happy with him in charge has now led this team to a World Cup. So is he going to be rewarded for that or are the players going to speak out further saying that we've performed on the pitch? But I think uh, these questions have to be asked and the fact that Jorge Vilda, whenever it came up in press conferences, just said, next question. You, as, <laughs> it's just you, unbelievable, isn't it? It's unbelievable, you know, and it's staggering how well this Spain side have, have done despite everything that's happened off the field and the fact he can just go next question in a press conference. Well, obviously we're recording just after the final whistle, but the Spanish Football Federation has tweeted a picture of Jorge Vilda kissing the World Cup, his hand up in the air, and they have simply put Vilda in. In the wider context, we don't know what that means, of course, but it is a clear show of support for the Spanish manager once again. It is frustrating, isn't it, Michael, that they can't be held accountable sometimes. And it almost feels like he hasn't been held accountable because they've won the World Cup, but then... It's like the players have won the World Cup for their cause. It's very convoluted and confusing. It is. It's slightly difficult to know how to to deal with it all, really, because, I mean, as you said earlier, the decision to, to bring Parallel in worked really well, but it's it's tough, really, to give him too much praise when it, there's lots of players who aren't here because of him, and it seems like the players who are here don't really respect him. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a slightly difficult one to uh, to unpack. Uh, look, Michael, we need to let you go in a minute, so I'm going to let you get to the presser, but just one final word on England. Before this tournament, you know, did, did we expect England to get to the final when we consider the the injuries? There was so much concern over them and then some of the performances early on, not particularly convincing. So how do you reflect for England? And look, it's we have to be honest, it is a missed opportunity to lose a World Cup final, isn't it? It is. I mean, I think they've had a good tournament. Like you say, they've had a lot thrown at them in terms of injuries. That was quite tough for them to get over. Compared to last year, they were without the captain, um, without their number nine, their number 10, and their top goal scorer from last year. So to shift and adapt to that, I think they deserve a lot of credit. Yeah, it's a bit of a missed opportunity tonight. I think they were second best on the day. But it's, I mean... I don't think anything individually went disastrously wrong. I would question Vickman's tactics in the second half, but I don't think the tactical approach in the first half really was why they lost it. But there's no real inquest to have. You know, there's no scapegoat needed. I think they were just second best on the day. That can happen. And they've got a very intelligent manager and a very young and I think uh, pretty tactically in- intelligent squad as well. So I'm sure they'll, they'll treat this as a lesson and hopefully improve on the back of it. Absolutely. Hopefully Serena Vigman's not going anywhere too. Michael, you have to go somewhere. You have to head off to the post-match presser. Um, Look, thanks for joining us so much during this tournament. I know it's been crazy and you've been here, there and everywhere in Australia and New Zealand. It's been a pleasure having you on. And uh, if you want to read any more of Michael's thoughts, there'll be plenty of those over on The Athletic. Cheers, Michael. Pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me on. I've really enjoyed doing the podcast. So, uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Michael. Safe flight home, Michael. Cheers, Michael. Bye. So we have a winner of a tournament that I think we have all absolutely loved. We're going to reflect on it after this. Welcome back to the Athletic Men's Football Podcast. So, 162 goals, 102 assists 
14,000 kilometres covered. The 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup is now over. It really has been the most incredible tournament with what you have to feel could become a watershed moment for the women's game worldwide. There's so many amazing moments to reflect on, to look back on. So we've asked our writers to look back and just remind ourselves of ones you may have missed or forgotten about as one drama overtook the other. I'm Steph Young, and the moment from the tournament that will stay with me has got to be Sam Kerr's goal to bring them level with England in the semifinals. Kerr running at bright. Kerr with the shot. Oh, I say that's incredible! You could tell that the weight of the entire tournament, of the entire nation, was on her shoulders, and she felt it every single time that she just couldn't quite get that ball over the line. But in that one moment, The way the stadium erupted, the way the team reacted, the way that image of Sam doing her celebration on the sideline has lingered. When you think about the way the Matildas have spoken about legacy a lot and wanting to take this tournament and leverage it into something for the next generation, it's not just talk, it's not just a platitude. You can tell that they really sincerely both want and need for this moment to turn into something that lasts, you know, for the next 10, 15 years. I'm Charlotte Harper, and the moment that will stay with me from this World Cup is Bethany England's penalty against Nigeria in the round of 16. England for England! Bethany England didn't play a minute at the Euros last year, but when England won, She made a beeline for Wiegmann and embraced her. She said it was pure elation, the hard work, the tears, everything that group had been through in those eight weeks. It showed how wholeheartedly players trust and believe in their manager, even if they aren't picked to play. So when Wiegmann put Bethany England on in the 105th minute against Nigeria to take a penalty and she scored, that summed up this England team to me. I'm Tamara Griffin, and the moment that will stay with me from this tournament is Australia and France's epic quarterfinal match and the penalty shootout that followed. Bond scores for Australia! And for the first time in their history, they are through to the final four! As far as narratives go, this game was pure gluttony, especially for a neutral. Even if it had been decided in regulation time, it would have been such a treat. It was end-to-end the entire time, intense and high drama, full of goal line saves and passion, even some blood. And then the shootouts. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I cycled through every human emotion by the time it was all over. It felt like having a front row seat to history as it was being made, and I feel really privileged to have been a part of that. I'm Harriet Drudge, and the moment that will stick with me the most from the 2023 World Cup, well, it's a few moments really, any time Colombia were playing. Hands down, the best match I was at in person was their group stage game against Germany. Linda Caicedo took this tournament by storm and really announced herself on the world stage too. The 18-year-old scored what I think possibly will be the goal of the tournament to give Colombia the lead against Germany. Now, Caicedo. Oh, lovely feet, Caicedo! And though Alexandra Pop equalised late on in that game from the penalty spot, you just knew that Colombia weren't going to settle for a point. They knew that Germany were there for the taking 
and they had an opportunity to make history for themselves. I hadn't seen many of their players play before this tournament, but I'll be keeping an eye on them and Colombia matches from now on. I'm Mark Carey, and the moment that will stay with me from the tournament is Bia Zanarato's goal for Brazil in their opening game against Panama. Devinha making strides up against Castillo. Little exchange with Adriana. This is lovely play. It's fantastic play. It's 3-0 Brazil. And for me, it was just the perfect goal. It was a goal that was befitting of the Yoga Benito style of play that Brazil are so closely associated with as a nation. It was the one-touch play, it was the, the flick from Adriana, it was the first-time cross from Dabinha, it was the backheel from Ari Borges in the penalty area that was then fired into the roof of the net by Zanarato. I think Brazil basically walked the ball in on their own terms. And some people might prefer a long-range strike, like we saw from Australia's Sam Kerr against England or Colombia's Linda Caicedo against South Korea, but... For me, this was the, the goal of the tournament. It was a goal of the highest quality, and in my opinion, it was the moment that the World Cup truly kicked into gear. I'm Michael Cox, and my moment of the tournament is South Africa's 92nd minute winner against Italy in Wellington in the final group game, which made the score 3-2 and took South Africa through at the expense of Italy. Chantlana is the only one inside the penalty area. Magaya, lovely first touch. Can she do it again? Chantlana! It was thoroughly deserved and South Africa's best two players on the night combined for the winner. Tembi Katlana scored it, but for me, the real genius was Hilda Magaya's brilliant selfless pass. I was 100% expecting a shot after she'd broken through the defence, but she had the calmness to look up, see a teammate in a better position and slip her the ball. I loved the way Magaya ran off celebrating her assist with her hands over her mouth, just in complete disbelief. I also have great memories of speaking to her in the mix zone afterwards, where she was completely overcome with emotion and kept referring to herself as the breadwinner. I was also so impressed with manager Desiree Ellis afterwards, so passionate but so clear about how South Africa changed their tactics in the second half. I found a lot of coverage of this tournament quite parochial with journalists focusing on their own nations and the big stars, but it's a World Cup and covering South Africa qualify for the knockout stage for the first time is exactly what this is all about. That was Steph Young, Charlotte Harper, Tamara Griffin, Harriet Drudge, Mark Kerry and Michael Cox. Uh, two of them are still with me, Mark and Charlotte. So uh, let's have let's have a further chat. The Golden Glove has gone to Mary Earps, the Golden Ball to Aitana Bonmarti and young player to Samuel Paranello. It's been a fantastic tournament, but do you think it's going to be remembered, Charlotte, as a real moment of change for the women's game? You know, we talk about the Lionesses all the time, not just here, but but globally. I think so. And that's how it was received in Australia. Um, we saw the Euros and England were hosting that tournament. So, of course, it was palpable. Um, and But that has been reflected again in Australia, not traditionally a footballing nation. And you'll have just coffee chats or people that you wouldn't stereotypically think would be interested in women's football asking about the game. What's going on? What do you think? And that has been felt back here in England as well. But it's the Colombias, the Nigerias, the Jamaicas, Morocco, who provided such entertainment. It was a joy to watch. And it felt as though it wasn't just football for the big nations or the big hitters like US or Germany. Um, it's actually developing the global game as a whole. It just feels that 
five. Well, we've been knocking down doors for years. Thanks, Johnny. But it feels like women's... <laughs> Push them fo- open, Charlotte. Push them open. <laughs> I'm pushing hard. Um, like... I feel like we say this again and again after every milestone, after the Euros, like we we have to push um, for the WSL and um, the domestic game. But I hope Spain do that. I hope they improve the conditions for their players regarding broadcast deals and uh, professionalisation and minimum wages and the standards there. We, You know, the, the golf in the competitiveness of the Spanish league, that's just one federation, but... Look at all those, like the Nigeria players not getting paid and FIFA saying every penny of those bonuses will go to the players. It's just this tournament will and has to accelerate the much needed foundations globally across the women's game. Yeah, um, Mark, the announced attendance Steph Young tweeted at the World Cup final was 75,784. So unofficially right now, the tally for the total attendance, including the third place game, is 1,000,000. 978,274. This is nearly 500,000 pounds over initial targets and projections. I mean, Charlotte said it there, Australia, not particularly a football nation, nor a New Zealand. This has far exceeded even FIFA's hopes for the tournament, hasn't it? Yeah, which can only be a positive. And I think to kind of add to the stats, which, you know, I love, I think that it was 11.2 million Australians watched the um, the Australia-England semi-final, which I think was the biggest coverage of any program in Australia um, I think ever I think since they were collecting the, the statistics on that in 2001 which shows it's not just the the biggest football coverage it's not just the biggest sport coverage it's the biggest coverage or, or sort of viewership of any program which goes to show just how much everyone kind of gathered around for, for Australia but as you say just in general I think that the word that people often use after a, a major tournament whether it is football or sport in general is kind of legacy and you just really hope that there is a, a really strong legacy and this doesn't just kind of burn bright and then sort of go go away quite quickly. And as to, to Charlotte's point and both of your points of it it being the, the smaller nations and just everything around it, you just want it to make sure that this is something that continues for for years, not not days or weeks or months. And this is something that absolutely changes in, in the long term in terms of everything Charlotte said in the infrastructure and the payment and everything from each individual federation um everyone comes together for a, for a major tournament but you want to make sure that this is something as a as a catalyst and as a foundation rather than kind of the end point and we you know go back to our normal lives so to speak you know next week and not talk about this again we need to continue to to talk about this in the women's game i spoke to marie christine bouchier who's the um head of women's football at the pfa and she said look we need to be mindful about the standards and make sure players are protected in this journey because it's extremely fast-paced for them too. So if you've got the expectation of players winning tournaments, which England have, they've reached their third consecutive World Cup semi-final, they're going to have to have the support systems in place to enable them to continue doing that. That's like ACL research, medical provision, nutrition, mental health, uh, psychologists, all that. But given that they play predominantly in their club environments, that has to be a minimum standard across the board. And it's England have reached a massive ceiling, broken those glass ceilings, but it's actually the floor that keeps you standing. And we need to make sure that those basics are stable across the board. I mean, technically, Mark, the game is just 
outstanding. That final was technically amazing. That Spanish midfield were outstanding. I mean, as Charlotte mentioned, the Super League begins at the start of October. Um, 12 teams in that league can watch, many of whom will have some of the World Cup stars we've seen performing over the last month. Um, what is the next step for football here uh, at home? Like Charlotte has said, it needs the grounding. It needs that work to go in. But you're still seeing such disparity between some teams like Manchester City and then those struggling at the bottom of the Super League. You know, And of course, the best teams attract the superstars. We know that. But the facilities and the pay is not the same across the board. You know, in in the Premier League, in the men's Premier League, you know even if you're going to go and play for a, a men's side that won't be competing for the top six, you're still going to make a very healthy living. But it's just not the same in the Women's Super League, is it? So where do we go from here? I mean, it's a very good question. Um, one that I don't think I have all of the answers to. I don't think too many do, but I think it goes with everything that both of you guys have said in terms of, yeah, that, that foundation. And I know it's been reported upon before of just how much the women's game is being accelerated and things that naturally do take longer, like training ground facilities or whatever it may be, is sort of failing to catch up, which makes sense just in terms of how long it takes to to build facilities, etc. But we need to make sure that that really is sort of catalyzed because, yeah, to, to everything that you guys have said before, like I, you know, I like to, to go and watch Arsenal women's game um, and they're playing at Boreham Wood and the, the condition of the pitch at Boreham Wood is just not up to standard for a WSL team. And this is Arsenal we're talking about and they're not one of the minnows of the WSL. And it just, it blows my mind every time that these players are, playing in spite of such poor conditions of just talking about the pitch alone, never mind because of. Um, and then we talk about things like injuries that, that Charlotte mentioned before. It's just, it's crazy to me. And I think that, yes, we could and absolutely should be putting more money into into the women's game. But I think the idea that, not that anyone's necessarily saying this, but the idea that it should just be on wages, it should be on wages, but everything else that goes around it to make sure that we're giving these players the absolute opportunity and platform to be able to play to the best of their ability. Just throwing money at, you know, wages and saying, yes, you deserve this is absolutely one thing. But do you know what I mean? It goes absolutely hand in hand as more of a holistic package um, to to show that you're absolutely supporting the, the women's game. So, uh, yeah, so much more to be done. And I come back to it with the, the legacy of it. And I think one final thing I'd say on it is that England have done so, so well to to win the Euros last summer, to get to the final of this tournament. But the thing that I keep kind of coming back to is that whether England went out in the group stage or got to the final, we should still be having this conversation. I think that sometimes people think because of the success of the of England in particular, this is why it sort of proves that we should have more more money in the women's game. But irrespective of how well they've done, this conversation for me is absolutely identical, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely does. Um Look, I couldn't sleep last night before this final and I've put together some thoughts just to sort of round off the podcast and I'd love your thoughts off the back of that. I think you two have so, said it so eloquently. So I've tried to sort of sum up really and it, this does feel a little bit self-indulgent so tell me if it is but just how far we come. Charlotte, I'm pretty sure we're a similar age so you can tell me if this is similar to your journey. So I'm talking about the Lionesses here but I think it applies to so many teams at the World Cup. So a lot of these girls have had to go to football with a boys team I know Lucy Bronze did be the only girl there picked on for liking football you know I was bullied for playing it wasn't normal it wasn't what girls did at my school we weren't allowed to play football in PE I remember I got sent to the corner for like doing QP uppies with the netball personally for me after being so worn down I just stopped playing for a couple of years I wanted to fit in but I couldn't stay away 
you know. That's why I admire this England group uh, even more because, you know, Lucy Bronze, Beth England, Jordan Nobbs, all a similar age to me. They had nowhere to play. Um, I played for an academy. We didn't even have a league because there were so few academies. And this is the same story for so many women. But now you're starting to feel that this story is not going to be repeated because of what this England team is achieving. Um, Many of them playing now played at this elite level while balancing a full-time job. Can you imagine Harry Kane like scoring for England on a Saturday and then going back to the office on Monday? Yeah, we were banned from playing. It goes so much deeper than just the football on the pitch. We always had to fight to get a game and somewhere to play, like you were just saying, Mark, to have a kit that actually fits. And the fact that players haven't had access to maternity leave, it's not just an issue in football. It's a decision women have to make in their jobs every day. You know, one of the biggest physical things you'll put your body through in your whole life. Can you pay your bills? Can you keep a roof over your head? It's not an issue for men. That's the truth. Periods and menstrual cycles barely even tapped into in football yet. The same in the wider workplace, I feel. And only now have we begun to investigate. We've talked about it on this podcast why there are so many ACL injuries for women. Our bodies are different, but medical history is based on men. The comedian Amy Schumer was terribly sick with hyperemesis when she was pregnant. But the doctor told her there was no research because it was a female condition. So... I feel this World Cup has completely transcended past football on the pitch. You know, we've talked about Jamaica, inspiring, but they shouldn't have to be. Why do we have to have a debate about bonuses with the FA? Why are they not the same as the men? If you want to grow the game, then you genuinely do, as Mark was saying, have to buy into everything. And I really hope this next generation of girls aren't going to have the experience that generations have had before. They won't be bullied for wearing a football shirt on non-uniform day. They won't be teased for playing football at break time. They won't be stopped from joining in in PE. They won't struggle to find a local girls team, a local academy, a kit that fits. And all the above doesn't apply just to this country we've talked about. You know, look at Spain. They have succeeded in a tournament where their federation has belittled their concerns and players have refused. Some of their best players have refused to come to a World Cup. This cannot be happening in 2023, but it does. There is still so much to be done. And I think, you know, you've both really covered how far we've come, but we also had to touch on Infantino, didn't we? And his comments. So in some ways, we're still going backwards. Um, The game is definitely growing, but we need everyone's support. I know my little boy's been running around saying, Women's World Cup 2023, he's three years old. And I know, and I hope that his generation won't deny little girls the chance of kicking a ball around They won't go and pop the ball just because it's a girl's ball. They won't deny them playing just because of their sex. We all have a massive part to play in this. But for me, the last four weeks, we have taken, in my lifetime, probably the biggest steps forward that I've I've ever seen. So that's the end of my little monologue. Hear, hear. Hear, hear, Michelle. And what I've loved as well is... uh, I was reading a piece from uh, Anna Kessel, who now is a director at Sky Sports... And she went out to a tournament in the, I think, around 2007. And there were a handful of journalists there. And they had to send back their copy and convince their editors to put it in the paper. I mean, I I actually can't imagine that now. But I don't know about you two, but do you even remember having this much coverage of a World Cup before? Because it feels, Mark, that it's certainly been the biggest yet. Yeah, and this is why I think it works both ways, isn't it? The more coverage, uh, whether it is on the television, in newspapers, in all senses of journalism, the more coverage you get, the more you get to to know the players, to watch the players, to have more of a, a connection. And it becomes this positive cycle rather than... You know, maybe to what you were saying before, if it's if it's not there and there's there's no sort of awareness on it of it, then there's there's less likely to 
to be more encouragement around it. So I think it, it works both ways. And I think the, the coverage in all senses of the word, certainly from the athletic, but on the, the television as well has been so fantastic. And that includes yours, your work on the television as well, Michelle, that it's, it's, <laughs> no, no, it's, it has, it's been, it's been so incredible. And I think that is testament to, to how much everything has grown as well. And I've, yeah, I've been captivated by the world cup since it's, since it started however many weeks ago now, um, I'm quite sad it's over actually because it's just been so entertaining to watch and the more we get to watch it the more we connect with the players and the more we're having sort of positive conversations around the sport as well Charlotte what's your final thoughts on the 2023 World Cup 2023 World Cup is a little trampoline bounce but what you need is the fans and you know it takes a village but that investment behind just don't stop here like from the WSL, turn up to those games. The, just because the World Cup is over does not mean that women's football is over. Uh, we saw the the Euros wave from last year and the fact that England have got to consecutive major finals will be a boost. Um, but in several aspects of the football industry, including the journalism industry, it's defined by numbers. And you often say, well, you know, we haven't got attendances at women's games or people don't subscribe to, to women's football. So if you like women's football and you enjoy the coverage, then turn up to games, tune in, um, subscribe and, and it, like enjoy the content because we love producing it and it's a privilege to produce it. Um, but it doesn't stop here. There's an Olympics around the corner um, and there's a WSL that kicks off on October the 1st. Yeah, absolutely, Charlotte. Well, look, thank you so much for joining us today and throughout the tournament, and thanks to my guests, Michael Cox, Mark Carey, Charlotte Harper, and Laia Cervello Herrero, and to everyone else who's joined us through the last month. I've been Michelle Owen, and thank you very much for listening. The Athletic. <laughs>